Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, generations of Black Californians have lived in Palm Springs. And LA Times journalist Tyrone Beeson joins us to share what he learned about belonging and home after visiting the desert community where Black people from the South, the Bay Area, and Los Angeles settled in the early 20th century. Then. Shohei Otani hit his 41st home run this week, the performance of the Angels All-Star, both at the plate and on the mound this season, has drawn comparisons to baseball legend Babe Ruth. What do you think? That's all next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. While few in number, Black residents' history in Palm Springs dates back to the early part of the last century, and Tyrone Beeson of the LA Times shines a light on that history and the lives of Black Americans living in the desert community today in his recent piece titled, We're Here to Stay. Despite isolation and racism, Black Americans feel at home in California's desert. Tyrone Beeson, welcome to Forum. Happy to be here. Thank you. And, uh, wanted to know what drew you to Palm Springs initially. Was it the juxtaposition of Black Americans and the California desert that I don't think we often associate? <laughs> well, it was actually the, the juxtaposition of African Americans and relaxation. <laughs> um, <laughs> this past one. year has been so stressful for so many of us yes. and, you know, myself included. I'm, you know, I'm a journalist, so my job is to kind of suck it up and just do the work and, uh, yep. you know, but, and I didn't get the worst of it. There are people, you know, on the streets last summer covering these protests up close and personal, and it takes a toll. And so I was really looking for a, a story that would help me um, explore the idea of finding your center again, after a year of protest and reckoning, you know, black people are always reckoning with race. We can never stop reckoning with race. So it's a bit of a strange expression for me, but I was trying to find a way for me to, to think about what it takes for us to set aside those burdens. The desert just seemed like a perfect place for that. It's become a place of, of, of reflection for me. And I, I love the colors. I love the, the, the wide open nature of it, the blue skies, the sunsets. I mean, it does something for my soul. And mm -hmm. I wanted to have a little bit of that, that touch, that feeling in, in a piece that looks at our reckoning because covering race and talking about race are so um, stressful. They're exhausting, uh, especially for people of color who are always having to come and sort of represent their experience and represent yes. their race, whether they yes. want to or not, in the service of, of, of making inroads and seeking reconciliation. That's a huge burden for us to carry. And I have to confess that it's a huge burden for me as a, as a Black reporter, even though this is my job and I get paid for it. It's still something that I feel 
uh, that, that weighs on me, you know, at the end of the day. And so that's really what drew me to the desert. It wasn't just the story of Palm Springs. It was really how does my story as a Black journalist um, covering these things for years, right, um, work its way into the narrative of race in, in this country. So I kind of came in through a more personal uh, door, I guess, and it wound up being the sort of voyage of discovery, as stories often do, where I start to hear the stories of other people who live in the, in the desert, who made, who made their homes there, and who have had to deal with America's issues around race uh, among the Joshua trees and the cactus and the low slung buildings and swimming pools of, of the desert. Well, this sentence really stopped me when I, I read your piece and I found myself lingering on it for a while. You wrote, for the few Black Americans who live in the California desert, it takes willpower to feel at ease in these playgrounds and imagination to make them feel like home. Yes. Can, can we break that down a little bit? I mean, what requires the willpower? The willpower, in, well, to be honest, it takes willpower to be Black anywhere in yes. America, but certainly, <laughs> let's just get, put that on the table. Right. But the desert is a very unique sort of ecosystem. I mean, like not, not just in terms of the plant life and, and, and what have you, but the social climate. Um, it's quite far removed from the centers of gravity of Black life. This is not the South. This is not Harlem, Chicago. It's not South Central LA. There's almost nothing out there. <laughs> and I think that has a certain appeal, even for African-Americans, the idea of being away from the pressures, uh, the social and racial dynamics of urban life. But it takes willpower. What I mean by that is that you have got to be able to hold your own, to be who you are, to uh, celebrate your, your heritage, your culture, in a place where those things might not be reflected around you. The population of Palm Springs and of the, the Coachella Valley and farther up uh, by Joshua Tree, they're, they're quite small. So the feeling of, of isolation is even more intense. So you have to try to maintain your blackness in a place like that. Um, and not everybody wants to do that, right? Some people want to forget about their troubles and, and not be burdened with, 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 with that history. But if you want to sort of stay true to who you think you are and keep those roots alive, you've got to do it. And I think that that's something that I, I, I assumed would be the case just based on my own experiences as a visitor. And uh, I found that to be the case with people who I, uh, who I uh, uh, encountered when I was there. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the, the personal stories of the people that you feature, even just listening to you, I, I'm remembering one of the um, one of the profiles that you did was a person describing how, you know, he had to learn from his elders when you talk about willpower, just also back in the day, having to deal with in Palm Springs, the humiliation of being forced to enter restaurants there through the back door and so on. So talk a, a little bit about um, the generations living there now. Well, the, what might surprise people is that there are multiple generations of African-Americans living out in the desert in Palm Springs in particular, um, which became kind of a hub simply because it's the largest um, community there. But, you know, I heard from one from one longtime resident, someone who's born and raised there, uh, whose grandparents uh, had to make a life out here 50, 60 years ago. And 
you know, as you're growing up, as we all do, we hear stories when we're sitting in the living room or at the Thanksgiving uh, day table, you know, dinner table about what life was like back in the day. And so those things really mm-hmm. stuck to him. The idea of, of their, his elders having to um, order food at the back door because they weren't welcome in the front door. Now, this was not Jim Crow segregation, right? Many of the black people who live in the desert and who live in California, quite frankly, escaped that when they migrate, migrated to California, but what they encountered was another kind of Jim Crow um, with palm trees and cactus and the ocean. But in none of these rules were written down necessarily, but people understood where they, where they were simply because they were black and crossing the Rocky Mountains and the desert to the West Coast didn't mean that you all of a sudden didn't carry the baggage that comes with your skin color in a country where black people were deemed unworthy. So he remembers these stories from his childhood, you know, and I, I thought it was very, it was a very tender moment because he loves Palm Springs. He, he actually lives in ne- neighboring desert hot springs now, but it's not as if he spoke to me about these experiences as, as dark. <laughs> what he said to me, and it was really profound, he said, I can be mad about this. And sometimes I am what my elders went through. But there's other moments when he feels pride because they were able to hold their own and be who they were and achieve things in spite of the climate that Palm Springs uh, greeted them with. That's what I walked away with is this idea that Black people's resilience helps them to endure situations that might come as a quite, quite a surprise given that they are not, again, in these, in, these, in these environments where segregation was in fact the rule, like the, like the American South. And so, it was a happy conversation, if that makes any sense, because he found a way as a younger black man, he's, he's you know, my age in, in his 40s, you know, to, to, to be happy and to be in a way independent of the struggles of his elders while recognizing and appreciating them. Yeah, and he says, I love it here. I, he loves it. And I, I guess there's also this part of me that wonders if that's what you meant in that second line of the sentence I read earlier, imagination to make them feel like home? Yeah, uh, this is something that I know because I'm a writer and it takes imagination to write about race and not lose your mind (laughs) or or lose your faith in America, I have to say. And so a lot of the lines in the story are very personal. And what happened was, just like if you were to yell in the desert, you can hear your echo across, you know, across the expanse. I would say these things to people and they would like repeat it back to me, but in their own experience. And so I know that it takes imagination to be black in America. And I know from having heard these stories now that it takes imagination for black people to, to have a life and to feel happy and at peace in the desert. And I think what they meant by that uh, in, 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 in their context is, You've, again, you've got to really try to imagine that this place is for you. You've got to make it look like you. Um, one of the funny instances, incidents I had there, it wasn't even an incident, it was actually just a funny moment, but one of the people who I spoke to drove up in a golf cart and it was gold. You know? So just imagine <laughs> me, I'm interviewing a couple of people about their experiences, you know, good and bad, but mostly good. And, you know, uh, and a black guy rolls up in a gold golf cart. And I thought, what an amazing act of imagination to to say, I'm not going to let these people have this beautiful fantasy that Palm Springs presents to visitors and those who who, who move there. I'm going to do it too. Uh, 
And so that it was actually that moment that 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 prompted me to write the line in the story. It you know this is we have to be very creative as Black people um, to make places ours when we are told all the time that they're not. Right. I, I mean, one of the stories that really I think um, hit that home for me was when you were describing a line of trees that actually a group of neighbors recently organized to cut down, which in many ways was all about, you know, there is this carefully constructed fantasy of Palm Springs to some extent. And um, there is a way of saying, you know, I am here and I am part of it. And I am not going to be somebody who is out of the view of the visitors that you are trying to court in this place. And I just love that golf cart story that that you are sharing. I also want to invite our listeners to join this conversation. And maybe we can talk more about um, that that uh, tree line right after the break. But I want to invite them to to respond if there's anything that you're saying that really resonates um, with them. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. What are your questions for Tyrone Beeson? Does this story reach you or your experiences as a Black Californian or a person of color living in a desert town, in any town really in California? You can also email us, forum at kqed.org. You can post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. And again, 866-733-6786 is our number. We're talking about the history and experience of Black Californians in Palm Springs. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Tyrone Beeson, staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. His story that we're talking about with the experiences of Black Californians in Palm Springs is titled, We're Here to Stay. Despite isolation and racism, Black Americans feel at home in the California desert. And if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. And as you were saying, Tyrone Beeson, before the break, you know, Jim Crow wasn't necessarily explicit in the Palm Springs area, but there were certainly ways of trying to separate people. And I had mentioned the line of trees. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that story, but also how it relates to housing segregation uh, in the area? Well, like a lot of places in Southern California, um, there were different ways of, of separating out people of color. Um, you know, obviously there was redlining. And that was certainly the case out in the desert. But what I found really interesting about this story is that it wasn't necessarily redlining. It was actually kind of greenlining in a way. Um, Palm Springs is quite spread out, right? There's a lot of patches of desert all over. And you can imagine that in the middle part of the last century when the city was developing, that there was even more. So there was a lot of, you know, there are a lot of places for people to live. But 
that row of trees uh, was planted in the late 1950s um, to separate a municipal golf course um, from the neighborhood adjacent to it, which <laughs> coincidentally or, or not, um, was just being settled by a lot of African-American people. And so for years and years, the African-American community was upset about this. Um, they understood it to be a yet another dividing line uh, to keep them from enjoying all of the, uh, the wonders of this city. Um, it was a row of, of, in, of invasive trees, actually, tamarisk trees. And so they didn't even belong there. <laughs> and so that's you know kind of the first red flag. Um, but if you can imagine going out in your own backyard and literally there's like a row of trees as high as a utility pole and imagine that there is a gorgeous golf course and a, and a 10,000 foot mountain behind it yeah. that you never get to see, that your kids who play in that backyard every day never get to see. That is what this neighborhood looked like for years and years and years. And again, with with black people, it's almost like telling a ghost story. You you complain that it's racist and that that there was there was malicious intent, but you can never prove it, right? And finally, um, just a few years ago, really, neighbors, a, a multiracial coalition of neighbors actually got together and worked with the city to finally remove those trees. Um, after there was some acknowledgement, I think on the on the part of some of the city that that those trees were planted as a kind of segregation. Um, as a kind of metaphor for where Black people stood in a community where many of them were quite happy, but where they knew uh, their place. And so it, in a way, reaffirmed the city's attitude toward Black people, but it also confirmed for Black people that Palm Springs wasn't necessarily welcoming and didn't want them to be a part of this fantasy of golf courses and country clubs and mid-century modern houses and, and palm trees and all the things that that drew the Rat Pack and other celebrities, you know, and, and a lot of us even today uh, to, to the town. Let me go to some calls we have coming in. I'm going to start with Lisa in Sacramento. Hi, Lisa. Hi, I just want to thank you guys for this. Um, this is, we go down once a month and I am dying to move down there. I love it. it. The desert calls me, but I have to tell you, we stay, I think it's La Quinta, which is a little bit outside of uh, Palm Springs. I never see black people down there. Literally, we're the, when my family and I go, we are the only ones. So I was wondering where the community is and where the involvement is. Because if I'm going once a month and I see maybe one or two, not even working in the hotels, I just don't see them. I'm mm -hmm. just wondering where that community is. Maybe I'm on the wrong side of town. Lisa, thanks. Tyra? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you are not on the wrong side of town. <laughs> They are on the wrong side of town, actually. It is, it, you know, and I don't, I don't say that. People are very proud of where they live. But I had the same reaction that you did. Um, you know, this, the desert is a very strange and bewildering place because as a person of color, you go there and you do the sort of spot check. Do you find anyone <laughs> in the space who looks like you? Yeah. And I've been to Palm Springs as a visitor and looked around a dining room or, you know, walking down the street or in a, one of those furniture stores, you know, and, and I never see anybody who looks like me. I mean, they're, they're, it happens on occasion, but it's, you know, pretty rare. And so I had that same impression. That's one reason I wanted to stop in Palm Springs on my journey, journey through the desert is to go to a place where I don't see myself reflected and see if I can just find a flicker, you know, like a, just a glimmer of, of something that I can identify with. And that's what led me to these, to, you know, to think about these neighborhoods. They are at the extremes of the city. The, the neighborhood where the trees were planted is called Lawrence Crossley. And it's a little bit south 
of town. I mean, it's oriented a bit southeast of town near the airport. The other neighborhood is a few miles north of town. And as you drive north, you're out of the city, really. Um, and you're heading up toward that sort of grove of windmills, you know, uh, where the wind is always blowing. And, and that community is, is a little bit larger and it's, and it's up there. So you are not wrong. <laughs> These neighborhoods are not really located in the centers of town, as you might expect. They're located kind of on the fringes. And yet people were able to turn them into, um, into viable neighborhoods and communities. Lisa, thanks for the question. And you bring up Lawrence Crossley. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about who Lawrence Crossley is and, and what he means to Palm Springs. He means a lot to Palm Springs. I had never heard of Lawrence Crossley. This is, again, these sort of hidden histories that you find as, as a journalist that, that you just love sharing with, with readers. Lawrence Crossley, uh, it's the name of a neighborhood. It's also a, a person. He was the most prominent Black entrepreneur in Palm Springs. And He'd been in town for, for, for decades, actually, uh, before those trees were planted. Um, like a lot of people, he moved from Louisiana, um, who, who were Black. Uh, he was a musician in, in, in New Orleans, I, I read. And he, his family moved out to the desert, and they were able to build wonderful relationships with some of the early entrepreneurs, hotel developers, and golf course developers in Palm Springs. So believe it or not, in this place where you hardly ever see Black people, a Black man helped design some of the most prominent older golf courses in the city. He, he started work there as a chauffeur, and you know his, he and his wife were doing sort of, sort of low-skilled jobs, but he was actually incredibly talented. And so he, through the magic of um, uh, networking, I guess, uh, was able to build relationships with some of the most prominent people in the city. And he worked side by side with them on, on uh, say, the, uh, at the El Mirador Hotel, Hotel, for example, So, which is one of the older uh, sort of original hotels in Palm Springs. This really surprised me because I assumed that there would be no sort of Black roots in Palm Springs. And actually, Black people helped put the roots in Palm Springs. And, and so Lawrence Crossley, uh, was able to purchase parcels of land or acquire parcels of land over his lifetime. And one of them happened to be this tract uh, of land with you know, maybe seven dozen or so uh, parcels in it. And he envisioned creating a, a viable black community even then, um, creating a space for, for black people to come, buy land, build a house, raise a family and be a part of this community. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, too soon in 1962, um, only a few years after getting the, the plan underway and building a few houses. And so he wasn't able to realize that vision, but by then things were already set in motion and African-Americans were, move, were moving there. So you can imagine that these trees are being built right around late 1950s. He's envisioning this as a black neighborhood around that same time, early 1960s. So his success at sort of creating a black community in Palm Springs bumped up against um, the city's efforts to redevelop itself and, and improve its image to attract more visitors. And many Black people today believe that meant closing off that Black neighborhood from places where white people might go. We're talking with Tyrone Beeson, staff writer for the Los Angeles Times. We're talking about his story titled, We're Here to Stay, Despite Isolation and Racism, Black Americans Feel at Home in California's Desert. And you, our listeners, are with us sharing your thoughts at 866-733-6786. And let me go to Billy in Bloomington. Hi, Billy. Hi. Uh, interesting show. Uh, very interesting. I, 
have friends of, of numerous kinds in that region and uh, in sponsoring itself. <coughs> Excuse me. Pardon me. Um, what I don't think uh, maybe uh, even uh, this good reporter from the LA Times uh, realizes perhaps is the uh, Torres Martinez uh, band of uh, Native people, Indians, that are southeast of uh, Palm Springs, not by far, uh, um, uh, are fundamentally connected with black uh, intermarriage people. Um, I took out a friend of mine, he's like a nephew, and his growing up buddy, <clears throat> excuse me, came with us. We came out to see that young man's uh, uh, mother's land that she wanted to give to him. She's registered as Torres Martinez native woman. And uh, uh, his uncle came out to show him where the land was, and his uncle's clearly black. And we went on into the res, the reservation uh, area, uh, town, township area there, and uh, met an aunt. She's also very black. And uh, we got him his uh, tribal registration. That uncle was who created the first store uh, that interacted with the public for the good of the reservation. And that store parlayed itself through his efforts into becoming the first and the casino that's being used by them for other income making as well. And it's a fascination. So I just wanted to put that forward so we'd all think about it. Um, you do mention communities, actually, not just communities with Black people, Native Americans, but also Latinos, Mexicans as well in your piece, and also being affected by segregation, Tyrone mm. Beeson. Mm. That's really, thank you for that. Um, that's really interesting because uh, in Palm Springs, the neighborhood where you would find the people of color really was called Section 14. And it was it was actually smack dab in the middle of Palm Springs um, and uh, around Indian Canyon uh, Road. And so there is this sort of intersection, among, uh, you know, or there are multiple intersections among people of color in the desert. That land was all reservation land, the um, Agua Caliente band of uh, Cuya Indians. So most Black people and Mexicans and those who were sort of migrating there to do these types of uh, low-skilled jobs um, lived in a very working-class section of downtown Palm Springs that's gone now. There's a casino and the convention center on the property, but it was actually reservation land. Um, these Many of these dwellings were shanties. They were trailers. Some people put up tents. Um, you know, imagine people moving out to the desert back then who escaped poverty wherever they were and had to find a way to sort of live as working class poor people in the desert that was, you know, designing um, glamorous golf courses for the likes of Frank Sinatra, you know? So the, Imagine that today, you know, in Palm Springs, that is where the, the person of color neighborhood was. And for, year, for years and years, it was from this neighborhood that many black people migrated to Lawrence Crossley and to the neighborhood north of town. And it was a rather traumatic sort of migration within the city, um, spearheaded really by city leaders who wanted to redevelop that property and, and make the downtown more attractive to visitors. And many of those people were evicted from their homes. Uh, the city orchestrated a plan with the reservation and with the federal government, actually, the Department of Interior and other departments to have that land cleared for redevelopment. Um, some people reported um, in, local, news, in, the, in local, local news outlets coming home to find their homes bulldozed or burning to the ground. 
Um, so you can imagine the trauma that this, this displacement must have caused to the black people, um, to the Mexican Americans, to uh, some of the Native Americans who were not able to stay on that reservation land and who had to move. Um, that is a part of the history of Palm Springs that doesn't fit at all with the, the glamorous image that, 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 um, that, we, that we know it for. But those stories are embodied in the people who lived through it and in their children and grandchildren, uh, a couple of whom I was able to meet. Well, Matthew writes, I was recently in Palm Springs enjoying the gay scene a bit. I noticed that the bars were overwhelmingly white and Latinx. Can your guests comment on the intersecting narratives of Palm Springs as a gay Mecca and as a sanctuary for African-Americans? Well, that's really interesting. I mean, as a, as a gay man myself, I mean, I understand this. It's far away, uh, it's isolated, and that might be threatening in some respects, but it's also liberating. Um, as a black man, you know, I certainly understand this, but you know, as a gay man as well, I mean, the idea of, of, of being able to sort of remove yourself from the pressures of, of, of uh, urban life, for example, for me, are really attractive in both senses. And so Palm Springs, even though it doesn't have the kind of diversity that you would imagine in terms of, of race, it's actually quite diverse when it comes to um, the way people identify themselves around, around sexual orientation or what have you. And so I really find it fascinating that this, this city has this kind of image of being rather conservative and you know for the golf course and country club crowd, but also has an openness because it's so far away from everything of, of having a feeling like an escape that anyone could buy into. Abu in Sacramento join us. Hi, Abu. Hi. What's on Hello. your mind? You <laughs> Hi there. Well, you know what? I have, I've got a question for Tyrone and for you also. I mean, Palm Springs is a desert. First of all, who wants to live on a desert? Tyrone, come with me to Ghana in February. I am from Ghana. You have a blast. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, take, I'll take a response off of the air. Ah. Thanks, Abu. <laughs> Go ahead, Tyrone. I'll see you in a few months. <laughs> no, that sounds fantastic. And uh, that, that's, that's uh, wonderful. You know, a lot of people don't see the appeal of the desert, right? I mean, I do. I, I actually love the, the colors. I love the isolation. The heat, I don't love so much. But, you know, in a place like Palm Springs, you can, there's always some shade or a, a well-misted patio to sit on. But the desert has an appeal in its nothingness. And I think, it, to me, it's a mystical place. And certainly the Native Americans who've lived there for centuries, for millennia, can, can speak to this. You know, there is something very special and, and there's almost a spiritual force um, at play with a place so isolated and so barren and remote. Um, the, a place where you can only hear the wind. You know, a place where the sunlight is so all-encompassing, it's almost as if you can't go outside. I mean, that might sound unappealing, but there's something really beautiful about that, especially for Black people. I mean, you have to think about where the majority of, of African-Americans now live. They live in cities. Um, we were formerly people who, you know, brought to the country, uh, for the most part, to work in fields, and most of us migrated to cities. So the idea of space means something different to, to a lot of us, not all of us, but certainly those of us who live in cities. So the, the idea of, of nothingness, of, of sand and rocks and cactus and these amazing Joshua trees, if you move farther north up, up in the desert, you know, there's, it's, it's a beautiful way to kind of, as one person who lives in the town of 29 Palms says, get into yourself. 
which I thought was a lovely way to do that. Black people hardly ever have a chance to just get into themselves. We're always thinking about what our color means to everybody else. And I find the desert to be a place as hostile as it can be in terms of its climate and so on, the lack of water. It's a place where I don't have to worry about those things as much. At least I thought I didn't until I started to hear these stories. Well, there's, there are echoes in what you're just describing to the larger purpose of what the story is part of, which is your series, My Country. And you have described it as an attempt to make sense of things that, that bind us and tear us apart. But there was also this line that I read that really spoke to this piece, that you're looking for signs of, of healing. And, uh, and so I wonder where, where you're headed next, Tyrone. <laughs> Well, I've already I've already traveled to a few places I uh, uh, recently, and I was just up in uh, Central California to, to do a piece. I've been home to Kentucky, which mm -hmm. is a way to to heal. You know, I mean, I'm from the South actually. Uh, I migrated here from from uh, the South, not too far from Nashville, Tennessee, actually. So I kind of know what what people what baggage people bring to the West Coast, and um, you know, my stories are quite meditative but they're also meant to help encourage other people to do the same thing, to, to see themselves in, reflected in the country in a way that's more honest and more true and authentic to the times we're living in. So wherever I go, that will be my mission. Well, check out Tyrone Beeson's story in the LA Times and thank you, Tyrone. You're very welcome, I'm glad to be here. Stay with us for more Forum, I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.